ever had one of those a light comes on moments? <laughs> you know, nothing makes sense to you. In fact, maybe you didn't even know that you didn't know. <laughs> and then suddenly, out with a slap in the forehead moment. I get it. Oh, I see. You know, the lights come on. When I was a teenager, I asked my dad. I figured he knew everything. Was it really an apple that Adam and Eve ate? I mean, how do we know that? He said, it wasn't the apple on the tree. It was the pear on the ground. Okay, now you're going to laugh at me here. I'm a really concrete person. When he said pear, P-A-I-R, I heard pear, P-E-A-R, because we're talking fruit, right? Apple, pear, you know. I thought he was talking about a piece of fruit. I didn't realize he was meeting a couple of people at the base of a tree. I, I was thinking fruit. And I said, what? It was a pear. Well, how do you know it was a pear? How, why, how, do, you know it's an, how do you know it's a pear? I don't get it. I was very confused. I should have known. He had a grin on his face. <laughs> I should have known. Uh, he said, just think about it a while. Try not to laugh, but it took me three days. <laughs> and all of a sudden I said, Oh, a pear. Oh, a pear like people. Oh, I get it. Oh, man. It was very embarrassing, but nobody was around when I figured it out, so that was okay. <laughs> but I'm a little slow, you know. I mean, you know, give me a break. So there's these aha moments when we suddenly get it. And when we look at stories in the Scripture, we often see people doing the same thing. Generally, when someone encounters God, they have an aha moment. The woman at the well had such a moment when she was talking with Jesus. Well, first, he startles her by talking to her at all. I mean, she's a woman. He asks her for water. And she says, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. Why are you asking me for anything? Jesus, I think it's... He's very kindly. He gives her a chance to mess it all up. <laughs> just enough rope to hang herself, if you will. He says, you know, you've stereotyped me, but you couldn't be more wrong. If you knew who I was, if you knew what you were talking about, you'd be asking me for something, for living water, so that you would never thirst. Now, of course, she does what I did. She looks down the well. She looks at you. You know, he hasn't got a rope. He hasn't got a bucket. What, do you think you're magic or something? How are you going to get any water? What are you talking about? So obviously she was as thick as me. <laughs> she wasn't getting it. So Jesus gets more direct. He just said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Believe it or not, I think she is as thick as me because she didn't get it still. She still doesn't get it. In fact, she makes a joke of it. So Jesus jerks her back in line by bringing her <clears throat> life into focus. He has divine knowledge of her past and he uses this to move the woman to a place where he could provide a fresh angle on his identity. The woman was given insight into who Jesus is through knowledge he had that no mere man should have. And the light begins to come on. <laughs> She begins to understand that what Jesus said probably had more import than she understood. 
The woman was beginning to understand that Jesus was more than she initially thought. And she begins to respond to him with greater trust. She asked him a, a very pressing question, a very important question. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Well, first, of course, <laughs> she wants to move the discussion away from her sin. <laughs> you know, all those guys she had been with, you know, you can't really blame her. But she really did want to know the answer to her question. There's a couple things going on here. The one she brings up and the other she's completely unaware of. Her issue was the most pressing of disagreements between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans weren't just reject half-free Jews. They had also perverted the worship of God that the Lord himself had given to Moses. They had erected a temple on the mountain where Jacob's well was. I know they're just hills, but over there they count for mountains. So they had erected this temple there, and basically their thought was, why should we have to go to Jerusalem to worship with those lousy Jews who don't give a fig about us anyway? Why would we do that? Well, about 150 years earlier, a Jewish zealot had raised a small army, and they came in and destroyed this false temple. It really was false. But you can imagine the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The temple was false, so when they had... But that means the one in Jerusalem was real. We're going to come back to that temple and what it meant for worship in a moment. The point here is her trust increased so much that she expects that Jesus is able to answer this very difficult question. And she's actually genuinely interested in this question, uh, in the answer to the question. Remember, she, she didn't exactly get to sit and hobnob with the people who actually worshiped God, even in her society. She was an outcast there. So she had never been able to ask this question. And in fact, maybe that very point is why she would be willing to question the view that was passionately held by Samaritans that this temple should be here. And this guy comes up and he tells her things no mere human ought to know. So, yeah, whatever the case, she realizes this man may have the answer. She perceives he's a prophet. She certainly had heard of Moses' prediction, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But, of course, Jesus is more than a prophet. He doesn't seem to get that yet. <laughs> But this question shows an increasing engagement with Jesus, a deepening trust in who he is. Since Jesus was a prophet, perhaps she thought he could give the answer to this question, where should one worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. But we're going to stop there for a second. <laughs> Jesus asks her to direct her attention away from what has been to what will be. The hour is coming. Christianity is a forward-looking religion. She needs to look away from her past to what could be for her. Away from religious disagreements toward true spirituality. Now, she had no clue Jesus was saying this, but it was time to move away from the law to the new age of grace away from distinctions of 
places in religion towards true worship. Away from a place where you worship God to worship from the heart. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's huge. It's a biggie. About 2,000 years earlier, God had told Abraham to focus his worship on the true God by worshiping in a specific land. People weren't focusing on God and he knew this was what was needed to draw them to him. 1,400 years earlier, God had instructed Moses to build a movable tabernacle, a big, huge tent, if you will, so that the people would always have a specific place to focus their faith, a place to look to God. Add another 400 years and Solomon, after a ton of preparation by his father David, built a temple in Jerusalem at God's instruction to focus the worship of the children of Israel on the Lord, Yahweh. So for two millennia, God has said, focus on me by focusing your worship on a specific place. And now Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Wow! That's a big change. And Father. She would have understood Father as the Creator God, the Father of all people and all things. That's not really a problem. But I don't think there was a chance she could have understood God as the Father of Christ. Certainly not the father of the saints. In fact, her religion, her worship, was so superficial that she didn't even remember it should have an object. On this mountain we worship. What do you worship? Who do you worship? She had missed that the object of worship should be the Lord God. So Jesus says, move away from ritual to worship of the living God, the great I am. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans had disobeyed and denied Scripture to make a temple that drew people away from worship of the true God. Okay. To reject the nation of Israel was to risk rejection of the salvation that must come through them. But didn't you just say, Jesus, that this was all changing? Why not just let it go? Well, Jesus, in his humanity, was a Jew, not something else. He was inculturated into first century Israel, not somewhere else or sometime else. The promise of salvation was made to the Jews. To ignore that foundation is to miss everything. If you look at the man Jesus through the eyes of anyone but those who had a solid faith in the Old Testament Scriptures, you'll miss entirely that he was the Savior of the world. You can't connect the dots without that. Well, plenty of people missed it, even in that time, even in Jerusalem. In fact, even right there in the temple. Uh, think the chief priests and all his cohorts. So why did Nicodemus get it? Why did the disciples get it? Because they took seriously the Word of God, the Old Testament as we now call it, and understood the reality of who Jesus is is. It's just wrong to say that a person can find salvation in any religion other than Christianity. And you can't find Jesus without religion. Yes, there is general revelation, you know, in the stars, your handiwork, I see. That's true. DNA. 
is fantastic. I was 30 years in the information systems business. Amazing, the design of DNA. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. You can see the hand of God in that code. But if you see the design and you deny the designer, all you've done is increase your guilt. General revelation then is enough to convict men but cannot save them. And at that time, only those who worshipped as the Old Testament instructed had a chance of seeing Jesus for who he was. Only with that foundation, actually, was the new age possible. That's why Jesus said salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It isn't going to be where you worship, but who you are when you worship. It's not merely form of worship, but heart of worship. Sometime after this, a young Jewish lawyer, he would come to Jesus to test him with one of those great questions of the ages. Everybody wanted to know, what is the great commandment? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And Jesus goes on, But our point is that heart, soul, mind, to any Jew of that day would altogether mean all that you truly are. Your spirit, in other words. True worshipers worship in spirit. Okay, what's spirit? Well, first, spirit is who we are. Let's face it, this physical body is going away. Whether Jesus comes back and gives you a new body while you're still breathing or the one that you have decays away in the ground and you get a new one later. Either way, this body is going away. It's going to dissolve. But your spirit will exist forever. The spirit that you have right now, if your faith is in Jesus, your spirit will live forever. Okay, great. (laughs) What does all that mean? Fair question. Let's talk about something theologians call progressive revelation. When Adam and Eve were created, they were perfectly formed, body and soul. They knew God personally, face to face. But when sin entered the world, even they had a distorted view of who God is. Their children had even less understanding. Generations after generations, world events after world events, and we skip all the way to the time of Moses, And those ancient people's understanding before Moses, their understanding of the true God was very, very limited. So when the Holy Spirit led Moses to write the first five books of the Bible, those people were awed. It is pretty awing if you've ever read it. But it's nothing compared to what God moved later authors to write. In other words, God was building people's understanding of who he is through his word, bit by bit. By the time the Old Testament was finished, everybody had a pretty clear understanding of a few things at least. And one of them in particular was our constitution as human persons. They understood that we have a physical body and an eternal soul. When Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, they'd have hardly understood it. God is not a corporeal being. He is not physical in any sense. 
Now, a good Mormon will quote their belief to you. As God is, man will one day be. As man is, God once was. That's a lie. It's a heresy. It's not true. The eternal God created all things. Everything physical that is, he made out of nothing physical simply by speaking it into existence. Our Mormon friends believe a lie. We will never be like God who is eternal and never changes. Pantheism says God is in everything and everything is God. The light and the dark side of the force. <laughs> you no, know, that's not true. God is spirit. He cannot be part of the physical. Ancestor worship is very common all over the world and it's wrong because God is and always has been spirit. All those wrong beliefs tie the I am to the physical. And they're all wrong. God is 100% transcendent, separate and independent from his creation. So that gives us two reasons to worship in spirit. First, well, the Father is seeking people to worship him in this way, so I think by itself that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> but Jesus said it is also because of who God is, or more accurately, what he is. Spirit. Let's say it one more way. Worship should reflect and be shaped by the nature of God. So how can material, physical beings <laughs> please a spirit God? It's not like he needs anything material. He created everything that is material, that is physical. And he could do it again any time. So how can physical beings worship a God who is spirit? Because he breathed life into us. He gave us each a spirit that will last forever. Only when worship comes from the spirit, the soul, heart, and mind, does it transcend the material to the spiritual. In one sense, everything we have and are means nothing to God. But wait, he created us as beings both physical and spirit. So what does that mean? Only when our physical actions relate to the spiritual can we touch God. We must get past the merely physical to the spiritual. And actually, that's not even quite correct. There is no merely physical. Everything we do in the physical realm echoes in the spiritual. We are to live a life that is aware of the spiritual at all times. In particular, we need to be aware of God. We are to live all our lives, physical and spiritual, as God desires. In fact, anyone unaware of the spiritual reality ought to see so much difference in our lives over theirs that they ask, why do you live the life you live? All right, back to our poor woman in Samaria. She's probably kind of confused. But I just imagine her looking into Jesus' eyes. Into those intense eyes of Jesus. And she knows. She knows something, someone special is here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I'm not getting what you're saying and I need some help, which I understand one day I will get. Is that day today? She recognized that things would change when the Messiah came. 
I mean, think of the stories that she knew. Back at the very beginning, when sin first appeared in the world, God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Satan's grip on the world would be loosed. Speaking of that prophecy of Moses that we talked about, that there would be a prophet like him, Moses made it clear that all that he taught, Moses, would be nothing compared to what this prophet would teach. And everyone agreed the prophet that Moses spoke of and the one from back in Genesis was none other than the Messiah. Worship God in spirit and truth. So where is she spiritually now? Now, we've talked before. She has already admitted she was a sinner. She's ready to believe that someone was coming to save her. She only needs to understand this a bit more to be able to commit her life to Christ. So let's step away from her story for a second. The Jews of that day also believed all this about the Messiah. Well, many of them did. Were they ready to believe? I read an explanation by a modern skeptic a few years ago as to why people thought Jesus was the Messiah. Basically, he said that everyone was expecting Messiah at the time. The Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, the Samaritans, everybody was expecting a Messiah. And since there isn't any possibility of any such person, they had to take whatever they could get. You know. <laughs> so Jesus was the best candidate, so he got tagged. And it was just all wishful thinking. That was his entire proposition in a nutshell. Now, it is true that lots of men at that time claimed to be the Messiah. Everybody was expecting one. Most of the Caesars, by the way, claimed to be the Messiah, if you will. But just because everyone wanted and expected it, does that mean it's not true? I read the story of a pilot shot down over North Vietnam. He wasn't injured seriously, and he was able to radio his position back in those days, so... He knew a helicopter would be sent to rescue him, but it was late in the day, and they couldn't get to him before dark. So he spent an entire night evading the rapidly searching Viet Cong, and he was fervently hoping for the dawn, expecting a dawn. So does that mean it wouldn't come? No, of course not. Wishful thinking, wishing doesn't really make any difference as to whether or not something will happen. Either way. But it could point to the possibility that something is real. In other words, from where does the wish come? The pilot wished for dawn because he had experienced thousands of dawns and has good reason to expect one more. Couldn't the desire of the whole earth for a Messiah just as easily point to divine providence preparing the world for the Christ. Maybe some of the Jews struggled with the same type of thoughts. You know, oh, we've been expecting a Messiah for centuries. It's just all wishful thinking. Well, there's that, and that Jesus wasn't exactly what they expected. Most of them thought they'd get this warrior Messiah who'd wipe those lousy Romans off the map. You know. But they were all wrong. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. As we pointed out before, this is the first open profession Jesus makes of who he is. And, by the way, the clearest. To no one else except his disciples and at the end of his ministry, his enemies, 
Did he give anything near such a clear statement about himself? And Jesus' statement to the woman is even clearer than it sounds to us. He actually used the phrase, I am. If we forced it straight into English, it would sound something like, I am who speak to you. That doesn't work very well in English. And frankly, it doesn't work all that well in Greek. We should be aware they were probably speaking in Aramaic and then John translated it into Greek and he wrote it. So we can't be exactly sure how Jesus phrased it. But in John's translation, there is a direct connection to a very, very important declaration that God made to Moses. Uh, The Lord was instructing Moses and told him to go lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He says, "Uh, they're going to ask me who sent me. What should I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He's saying, come on, Moses. Do you really think you could explain who I am? (laughs) Just tell them that the one who exists in and of himself has sent me. I am. It's pretty certain that our Samaritan woman would have grasped that association with the name that God gave Moses for himself. Did she understand that Jesus claimed deity? No, I think probably not. Although the I am probably did startle her. It was not likely that she got it immediately. But she understood enough to tell everyone she knew about Jesus. (laughs) Suddenly the words made sense to her. Oh, living water. Oh, living water. I get Oh, I get it. So Jesus fills out her understanding of who the Messiah is and He'll do that for all who hear his voice. He is the great I am. Most people have, at best, a partial and imperfect picture of who Jesus is. We need to let them come as far as they can with what they know and then teach them more about him. We need to know that we have a limited, imperfect, probably flawed understanding of who Christ is. So first, that will keep us humble, I hope. (laughs) And we should take every opportunity to bring our understanding into better focus, to go all the way to Him, to the great I Am. I want to have you stand up and sing with me a song, I Mercy Me, called I Am. Thank you.
love that. You are, I am, the one, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in all of us who believe. This building is not the church. This isn't the temple of God. This isn't the house of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. This building is just a place the church comes to to worship the great I am. We are the temple. How does one become the temple of God? How does one become holy when we share with Adam the distorted reality that is the result of sin? Well, it's regeneration. Our spirits can be regenerated, born again, now, as our bodies can be later. We still have a lot of growing to do, 
but if the focus of the heart and the mind and the soul is to I am, we can actually be sure we are his temple. Do we do what we do in God's temple for his glory? Okay, not perfectly, not yet. But the great I am took on human form and died for us to regenerate our souls. Little by little, he changes us from the inside out. And one day, he changes He'll, he'll change us completely. He'll finish that work <laughs> when he perfects our souls and gives us perfect new bodies to go with. So where's the focus of your heart? Is it who I am 